What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. From Audioboom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions— told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and welcome to Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast looking at all things serious and not so serious happening uh, around our solar system and beyond. And joining me as always is Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you going? I'm quite well, thank you. Today Only we're... quite well? Only quite well? Well, on, well I'm, I'm probably feeling pretty good, actually. <laughs> OK. <laughs> now, today we're um, looking at Beagle 2, which was a probe that was, was sent to Mars and didn't do what it was supposed to do. Um, but it looks like they've actually found uh, or, or taken new images of it, which suggest it's intact, so something else must have gone wrong with it. Uh, the... The death of the dinosaurs we've always put down to, or m- more recently uh, confirmed, the, um, the, the, the they were probably killed off by an asteroid. But now new theories have been brought forward that suggest they were probably not doing very well prior to that event. And well, we'll we'll talk about that and SpaceX going to Mars. So we've got a couple of um, feature uh, stories about Mars this week, which uh, I, you know, to my way of thinking, is just the most extraordinary planet in our solar system. I just love it. If I had a choice, if I could go anywhere, I would go to Mars. I love that place. So, uh, Fred, let's look at Beagle 2. This was a probe that was uh, was sent out and, and ended up not doing anything. Um, yeah, it's a, look. It's quite a poignant story, is this, Andrew? Um, it's a, it's a <laughs> Beagle Two. Was, was I've always described it as a terribly British venture because um, basically it was uh, a space probe which were hitched a ride on a European space agency spacecraft, uh, Mars Express, uh, and uh, was designed uh, to land on the surface of Mars in December 2003. So this is some time ago. Mm. Um, It it was the brainchild of a guy uh, who uh, was uh, basically an astrobiologist at uh, the Open University, Colin Pillinger, a fantastic guy, full of enthusiasm, and managed to persuade people that he could send a spacecraft to Mars on a shoestring budget. And uh, so Beagle 2 did indeed go to Mars with uh, the European Mars Express spacecraft. But once it was jettisoned from the spacecraft in order to land on the surface of Mars in December 2003, uh, it was never heard from again. Uh, And the 
sort of thinking was always that uh, the summer atmosphere on Mars, the summer temperatures were actually slightly higher than they expected. And what that had perhaps done was caused the atmospheric pressure to be reduced on Mars' surface. I mean, it's only 1% of our pressure anyway, so it's not much. Um, but that would affect the way that the spacecraft's braking system would have worked as it came down through the Martian atmosphere. And everybody assumed that it hit the surface at a very high velocity and smashed into a million pieces, especially because um, uh, other orbiting spacecraft always failed to find any trace of it on the surface of Mars. So that was the situation until the beginning of last year uh, when uh, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, this is a NASA spacecraft which has a high-resolution camera on board, found an image of uh, something that looked suspiciously like a human-made artefact. And what happened uh, very quickly after that was that people modelled uh, the images that they were seeing uh, and worked out that, uh, yes, Beagle 2 did make a soft landing on the surface of Mars, uh, but it's, it had a sort of sequence of five petals, which basically opened up almost in a flower pattern. And they, those petals were the solar panels um, to, to gather energy for the little lander. Um, and underneath them was the antenna that was sending, supposed to send signals back to the Earth. Uh, the evidence seemed to be that only four of those petals had unfolded, leaving one covering up the antenna, and that was why we never heard from the spacecraft. Um, people were very convinced at that time that what they were seeing was Beagle 2. The poignant aspect of the story is that Colin Pillinger himself, who always believed firmly that his spacecraft had landed safely on the surface of Mars, he unfortunately died in 2014. So he never got to see um, the evidence of his spacecraft actually uh, having made it down to the surface. So why are we talking about this today? And the answer is we now know a bit more than we did back uh, a year or so ago because uh, some scientists at uh, the Mullard uh, Space Science Laboratory, which is part of the University College London, uh, they have basically uh, enhanced the images that came back by Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter uh, with a technique that they call super-resolution restoration. Sounds like one of these things that you used to find on hi-fi records back in the <laughs> 1960s. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> you see, the, the, um, so the, the uh, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, when it sends back images of the surface, uh, you have a, a pixel size which corresponds to about 30 centimetres on the surface of Mars. So anything smaller than that, you wouldn't see because it's just in one blurred-out pixel. Yeah. But the super-resolution restoration technique actually uh, shrinks that limit down to five centimetres. In other words, well, two inches in the old money. Um, so you can now see details on a scale of about two inches. And that means that um, the images that uh, these scientists uh, from University College have, have worked on um, of the of the Beagle uh, lander, they are now able to confirm unequivocally that what they have seen 
is the uh, is the beetle landing. They can also see the the back shell, the the, the sort of heat resistant shield that protected it as it came down through the atmosphere of Mars, and the parachute uh, that it landed on. So there is. And can uh, they can they confirm that it did not unfurl its solar panels? They can indeed. Yes. Yeah. So when you look at the you look at the image, you can you can quite clearly see uh, the the structure uh, of this. Uh, of these uh, petals, and there aren't five of them, there are only four. Uh, so the evidence is that, yes, indeed, poor old Beagle nearly made it, but just not quite, because it failed at the last hurdle. The, the mm. final solar panel didn't open, and uh, that that is basically, um, uh, that's what caused it not to be able to communicate with Earth. And what was um, its function? What was it supposed to yeah, do? Yes, so uh, that's right. The, the, the really interesting thing about Beagle 2 was that it was designed to look for evidence of biological metabolism taking place on Mars. So it had on it uh, sort of chemical uh, analysis uh, units which would allow um, some sort of evidence uh, to, to be gathered about whether there were microbes just under the surface of Mars. I mean, it wasn't a sophisticated device. It was very much um, a shoestring budget mission. It didn't have anything to drill down into the soil or anything of that sort, but it was looking for basically surface chemistry on Mars that might suggest that there were living organisms there. Now, we'll never know about whether that is the case uh, at at Beagle 2, not unless in a few decades' time somebody goes and has a look there. But uh, the good news is that the Europeans have a, uh, a project which is already in train, actually, called ExoMars, hmm. which is looking for the same sort of thing, but with a much better funded project and one that actually has much more sophisticated equipment on board. So um, hopefully the, the answers to the questions that Beagle 2 was designed to provide will come maybe within the next five Ten years or so, uh, it's just a great shame that uh, such a brave attempt to get a, a cheap spacecraft to Mars failed at the last hurdle. Yes, indeed. But um, I, I think the failure was in the name. Uh, anybody who owns a Beagle knows they're inter- <laughs> you know, highly intelligent and impossible to control. <laughs> uh, that's right. Yes, uh, indeed. So maybe uh, the, you know the next one should not be Beagle Three. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, a, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the dinosaur crater and how they're trying to drill into uh, the impact point and, and try and find out what they can find out about the original material that might have plummeted to Earth and supposedly killed off the dinosaurs. Now, I think most people agree it probably finished them off, but there is new evidence to suggest they were already in quite a dire situation before this asteroid struck around what is now Mexico. What's the theory? Yeah, uh, so the, the work that's been done, it's been done in the, in the, um, in the US, uh, suggests that when you look at the way a new dinosaur species were evolving um, throughout the rather long history of the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs first appeared about 231 million years ago, um, and they disappear quite suddenly from the fossil record about 66 million years ago, and that uh, is now thought to be due to the fact that, as you say, there was an asteroid impact, something only about 10 kilometres across, 
hit what is now the Gulf of Mexico, threw up huge amounts of material into the Earth's atmosphere, lowered the temperature. The dinosaurs couldn't stand that because they were cold-blooded creatures and they all died off. So that's the, the, the picture. However, the new research um, has looked at, uh, actually, it's, it's based on modeling, but they've looked at individual groups of dinosaurs as well uh, and uh, worked out that uh, if you take the... Uh, the, the number of new species that appear over X million years as being um, a, an indicator of the health of the dinosaur population generally. In other words, you know, how, how dinosaurs are, how successful dinosaurs are being at colonizing the earth, um, that, a measure of that might well be uh, how many new species are appearing over a given period of time. And we are talking about millions of years. So they've, they've looked at that over the history of the dinosaurs and realized that actually the dinosaurs were in trouble probably 50 million years before the asteroid impact. That at that time, there was a reduction in the number of new species of dinosaurs that were appearing. Uh, and so that's prompting more questions, of course, as to why, why this decline began. Indeed, that's right. And the obvious answer, and probably the correct answer, is our old friend climate change. Yeah. Um, so when the dinosaurs first appeared 230 million years ago or so, the, the Earth was... It was basically the perfect environment for them, and that's why they evolved to fit in it. Mm. Uh, it was um, it was basically a tropical paradise from pole to equator uh, because the Earth's temperature was much higher than it is now. Um, uh, and that was very much an amenable, um, an amenable environment for dinosaur species to evolve because there will be plants and that would allow herbivores to grow very large and that then engendered the, the carnivores that fed on the herbivores. You know, it basically was, uh, was a paradise for dinosaurs. But by the time you get to uh, maybe 115, 116 million years ago before the present time, then things have cooled down enough that apparently the dinosaurs are struggling in terms of being able to maintain this uh, proliferation that they had earlier. Uh, and the uh, thinking now is that uh, about 50 million years before the, the mass extinction, things were declining. Uh, and, uh, you know, one suggestion that has come out of this work is that maybe even if there hadn't been an asteroid impact, the dinosaurs would have died out anyway because they basically couldn't cope with the changing climatic conditions. Now, what would have happened is, of course, that they would have evolved into other species. And we know that at some level that has happened because there's very good evidence that, uh, that the birds, many of the birds that we, we take for granted today actually owe their origin to small dinosaurs um, that uh, probably survived the impact and, and did evolve into a quite different creature. But uh, the, the bottom line is that the, the impact allowed the mammals to flourish because uh, before the impact, the dinosaurs were very much the dominant uh, type of uh, life form on Earth. But after the impact, the dinosaurs were gone. Mammals had managed to survive this uh, rapid climate change that the impact uh, caused and clawed themselves back to become the dominant species on the planet. As is the case today. And exactly. uh, we, yeah. we perhaps should take note of um, what happened with the dinosaurs and what may have transpired had that 
asteroid not finished them off uh, in terms of climate change. Uh, and I saw a very interesting quote the other day from somebody saying there is no guarantee that um, if we keep going the way we're going that we will be able to maintain a habitable environment. So, um, you know, it's it's something to, to think about. Indeed, that's right. Yes, there's, um, there are lessons of history and, uh, well, in this case, prehistory. But, uh, yeah, we, 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 I, I mean, I suppose the good news in all this, Andrew, is that we are now far more aware of the importance of our environment to our own survival uh, than we were even 20 years ago. And mm. that, to me, is an encouraging sign. Maybe the dinosaurs didn't have that awareness. There was nobody among them saying, hey, folks, this place is cooling down. We need to you know, do something about that. It wasn't happening. Indeed. All right. You're listening to Space Nuts uh, with Fred Watson and Andrew Dunkley. Space Nuts. Now, our last topic this week is looking at billionaire Elon Musk and uh, what he's uh, what he's planning, and that is a SpaceX mission to Mars. Everybody wants to go to Mars, Fred, and I'm I'm one of them. <laughs> well, maybe you could be a candidate for uh, for a trip to Mars in a space vehicle about the size of a large car, uh, which mm. will take you six, well, maybe nine months to get there, or something of that sort. Um, the tr- problem is there wouldn't be much you could do other than just come back again. However, that's uh, that's as things stand today. Uh, it's the way things are looking in the future that is the exciting part of this. You're quite right. Elon Musk, whose company SpaceX is one of the uh, up-and-coming contractors to uh, to NASA, they are um, already sending uh, their Dragon space uh, capsules to the International Space Station with uh, with supplies on board. Uh, and are now, as we've discussed before, managing to return their boosters uh, safely to Earth rather than throwing them away, which, of course, brings costs down enormously. So SpaceX, very much the up-and-coming new kid on the block in terms of, uh, of the space industry. However, Elon Musk uh, doesn't just uh, have ambitions to uh, be a taxi service to the International Space Station. He has Mars very firmly in his sights. And... He actually is already talking about uh, a mission to Mars with the Dragon capsule uh, in order to land on the surface of Mars, not to carry people up there, but to carry instruments uh, and, uh, you know, basically research uh, material up to the surface of Mars. And he's talking about having a spacecraft on Mars Within two years, Andrew, that's really very, very ambitious. Um, He's uh, on record as having tweeted uh, that his Dragon 2 spacecraft is designed to be able to land anywhere in the solar system. Mm. That sounds pretty ambitious to me. Of course, Mars is the the first target. But um, it just, um, I guess the the point of this story is that it it does illuminate how how far-sighted and how go-ahead this company is. Uh, they have recently won um, some uh, defense contracts uh, in the U.S. because uh, that actually uh, is, a, is a big milestone because it's always Lockheed Martin and Boeing who get these contracts uh, from the U.S. military, but now SpaceX is starting to, uh, to see success in that area as well. Um, and I think uh, we will see much more of SpaceX. If their sites are on Mars... I think we have um, every reason to be excited about the prospects that maybe a, a, an upgraded Dragon capsule 
could be something uh, that would uh, be, be able to take uh, astronauts to Mars. Uh, clearly, NASA is working on its, um, uh, on its Orion project, which is uh, a deep space vehicle for human uh, crew members. But if there's uh, an, another uh, competitor or a, or, a, a, or a collaborator in this idea of sending humans to Mars, it may well be that the target date of 2035, which is what NASA has, might actually be brought forward, which will be very, very good, because that means you and I could probably talk about it on Space Nuts. Yes, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> actually, Elon Musk is developing quite a fan base. There's a note on our Facebook page uh, from uh, Peter who says, Elon Musk is really proving to be quite an amazing person. Thank goodness there are people like him in the world. So he's, yeah. he's obviously um, starting to... Um, get into the minds of of the general public in many ways. Uh, that's right. Um, I, I think he's um, he's got a you know he's got a persona that um, I think people like, as well as being clearly a very wealthy man and one who is uh, absolutely um, rock solid in terms of his commercial uh, nous in order to uh, develop these spacecraft. I think people like him. Uh, for for his slightly downbeat um, view of the world, I was very taken with um, one of his tweets. Uh, actually, it was the last, not not the most recent landing of one of these um, boosters onto a floating platform, but the one before, where it actually landed. But then the the rocket booster fell over and basically blew up because of that. Oh, and his reaction. Uh, his reaction was, well, at least the pieces were bigger this time, which I thought was very nice. <laughs> it's nice to be able to be a billionaire and, you know, afford to say things like that. Yes, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, you uh, can bet your life he was fairly well insured, though, I'm sure. I would, I would gather so. Um, his, his insurance premium would probably pay off half the debt of a third world country. <laughs> so that's right. Yeah. Uh, Fred, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much. A great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk to you. I'll see you in space uh, very soon, I hope. <laughs> uh, nutty as always. Yes, that's right. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you for listening. Don't forget to send us your little notes and observations on our Facebook page or uh, follow us on Twitter. And, uh, yeah, keep on listening and, and tell your friends and uh, write a few reviews. We really do appreciate the feedback. See you next time on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.